my personal view, and, and I've talked about this with people in DC publicly, is the idea that more and more growth is happening in the private markets while beneficial you know, selfishly for people like me who get to kind of monetize that growth. I don't think it's good for the country. I don't think it's good to not have kind of companies going public at a reasonable stage where a broader cross-section of public market investors can actually enjoy the appreciation there. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different. And that voice you just heard is our guest today, Scott Cooper. He's the managing partner of one of the highest profile, high-impact VC firms on the planet, Andreessen Horowitz. And he's also the author of a book I really enjoyed called The Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital, and How to Get It. And we have a riveting conversation about uh, Silicon Valley, of course, venture capital and startups, how you can get funded by a top tier venture capitalist, and a lot more. Oh, and I also want to tell you, um, Scott's firm has a standout podcast to check out called A16Z, which is the sort of abbreviation of the name of their firm podcast. That's A16Z podcast. So I encourage you to check that out as well. Now, as you know, serious entrepreneurs and finance teams run their business on NetSuite by Oracle, the number one cloud business system. NetSuite offers a full picture of all of your finances in one place in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. And that's why NetSuite customers grow three times faster than the S&P 500. And you can too. And NetSuite is surprisingly cost-effective. To schedule your free demo and get the free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, go to netsuite.com slash different for your free demo and your free guide, netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk want to help you bring data to everything, every question, every decision, and every action. Learn how to lead your digital transformation today at splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's splunk.com slash D2E. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. view was, there's no reason why all these questions shouldn't be answered and that we should kind of open the kimono in a way that's actually helpful to entrepreneurs. I think there's too much kind of a sense of almost inside baseball and uh, people don't understand why decisions are made or how they're, dis- they're made. And I think that just leads to kind of mistrust, quite frankly, between VCs and entrepreneurs. And in my personal view, is it's just unnecessary to do that. And so I, I'm glad at least uh, for an audience of one, it was uh, helpful and hopefully for, uh, for others as well. No, I can't imagine that it won't. And and you use the term inside baseball. That's exactly what I thought, Scott. Because, <laughs> you know, listen, I've been at this for plus or minus 30 years. And so you forget, right? Absolutely. I, I had. And so, uh, you know, looking at all your work, reading your book, hearing you talk about it, et cetera, I, I was just reminded of, holy shit, like there's so many things. Like I hadn't, I had a young entrepreneur ask me recently, um, what was the difference between valuation and market cap? Got it. And so right. you think about something like that, that I, I don't remember when I learned that or who taught me that, or, <laughs> but it's the value of the company and valuation is private and uh, market cap is public. That's kind of it. And then we could tell you how you back into the number if you want to go there, but like, there's the answer, right? But you just assume that's a, an example for me, I guess, of how much inside baseball there is that is easy to assume. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I was surprised actually, um, you know, the reason I wrote the book was I used to get a lot of entrepreneurs asking me these same questions and I kind of had the same initial uh, view, which is, uh, it feels like all these questions have been answered and it just seems like old hat in many respects since, you know, you've, you've been through this before as an entrepreneur and, uh, we see, you know, hundreds and thousands of deals a year, but it is amazing. Um, once you start to talk to people and you realize, you know, to, to your point, just how much of kind of black magic there is. And, and at some point, again, it's just silly. It doesn't actually add to the conversation and, and it just kind of creates, you know, unnecessary tension uh, between VCs and entrepreneurs. So anyways, yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's always, I, I do some teaching as I think you and I have talked about before. And it's always amazing to me too. You know, you, you, you go to a class and you think, look, this is commonplace. Everybody knows this. And, you know, you kind of forget that, you know, just by being in the industry for a long period of time, you absorb things that just, there's no reason why anybody would know them if they hadn't actually spent the time in the industry. Well, and it almost made me wonder, I know this is going to make me sound nuts, but you know who I stop now, um, <laughs> that there is so much inside baseball and there's so much acquired knowledge that I didn't realize was necessarily acquired knowledge. Um, and you, and so you take the, the implicit and you make it e- explicit and, and you lay it out in a very consumable way. As I, as I was going through it, I, part of me thought, Maybe the reason no one ever did this before is it was some kind of an IQ test or some kind of a, a test, like a, can you scale this wall? It was like a Spartan race of the entrepreneurial mind or something that you had to figure <laughs> all the shit out and the sacred, secret handshakes and all the voodoo and, you know, why everybody's at the Rosewood and all the stuff, right? Right, um, right, right. And then that was just a, a bar you had to get over. Yeah, I mean, that may be one explanation. Uh, I think the other explanation, which I probably won't win any friends for in the industry if I say it, is I think, look, in many cases, when you have information asymmetry, one party benefits at the expense of the other uh, in those types of scenarios. And I think for a long time, this industry was really a complete black box to entrepreneurs. And, you know, partly because that's just the way, you know, when capital was scarce and the VCs had it, there was definitely a very different balance of power, I think, between entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And so there was probably less incentive, quite frankly, for the venture capitalists to open the kimono and help people understand that. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, but the biggest thing I think this change in this business over the last 10, 15 years is it's as competitive as it's ever been. You know, money is clearly a commodity in this business. And so to me, you know, kind of the idea of, hey, if we can level a playing field and let's, you know, kind of enter into a relationship on the basis of, of, of us actually understanding one another and knowing what motivates one another, it feels to me that's just a better place to start. Well, amen. Hallelujah, brother. Um, <laughs> and, and you were talking fast and smart at the same time. So I want to make sure I got at the very beginning. Um, did you say information asymmetry and that that I was did. a problem? I did. Yeah. Yes. So say more about that, Scott. Well, so let me give you a couple examples, right? Which is, uh, number one, I think there's asymmetry in the sense of what motivates venture capitalists and therefore what are the criteria by which they're evaluating deals, right? So in other words, the way our business works, as you know, is we are wrong more often than we're right. And the only way we're ultimately right in the sense of making enough of an investment return for our investors is we've got to have probably 10 or 20% of our investments that can ultimately be like a Facebook or an Airbnb or Twitter, right? They can return very, very high multiples of your money. And when you think about that, then that drives all the behavior and the incentive structure for the venture capitalists, right? So we've got to swing for the fences to kind of, you know, hopefully not overkill the, uh, the baseball, inside baseball analogy. But every time we evaluate a deal, we have to at least believe that if everything goes right, 
is there a possibility this company could be one of those outliers that can ultimately generate that type of return? And so, you know, that's kind of the most foundational piece that I think uh, some venture capitalists, uh, you know, kind of don't clearly explain to the entrepreneur. And then when we say no on a deal, we're conf- it's confusing to the entrepreneur because the answer may be, look, this is a perfectly great business, but we just don't think that it actually has the capacity to be at that scale. And so, you know, that's, that's not a normative statement about whether it's good business or not, but that's just the reality of how things work, right? So there's foundational things like that that are just, you know, we know something that somebody else doesn't know. You know, term sheets is another great example, right? Where there's so much kind of, you know, art and magic in the, in the terms of the term sheet that, you know, we've seen this thing hundreds and thousands of times. So we think about how to optimize those in a way that I think is just not intuitive for an entrepreneur and, and rightly so because they only deal with this probably two, three times in their life. So it's things like that that I think create that asymmetry and, as I said, kind of don't allow the relationship to get off on, on probably the best footing. And so if I was a new entrepreneur um, and, and I was lucky enough to win lunch with you or something along those lines and, and I said, okay, so you know, what are the top two or three things maybe that uh, younger or, or newer entrepreneurs who maybe haven't been down the path before uh, you think need to know about VC that, that is not well known or commonly understood? Yeah. So I think one is um, this concept, again, that kind of for bigger VCs in particular, everything we're trying to do is find very big scale opportunity companies. And and so what that means, particularly for an entrepreneur, is this is one of the things that always, I think, you know, makes people crazy a little bit is an entrepreneur comes in and they say, hey, here's a great opportunity. Let me tell you how wonderful it is. Let me tell you how we're going to win the market. And oh, by the way, don't worry if we're wrong. Here's four or five or six companies who would buy us. Uh, you know, so you've got, we, we, we've got built-in downside protection on this deal. And I understand why people do that because, you know, we're all to a certain extent risk averse and people like that idea, but to the venture capitalists, it starts to kind of create kind of almost cognitive dissonance, right? Which is, gee, if this thing is so good and so great, why are we sitting here in this first meeting talking about kind of potentially selling to another company as opposed to how we conquer the world and ultimately make a standalone business out of this? Understanding, of course, as you know, that we're probably you know, more likely to actually sell the company at the end of the day, just on based on the numbers. But it's, it's yeah, things but like that. That's not what we're playing for, right? That, that's exactly right. So stuff like that, that you walk into that meeting and you kind of scratch your head and you're like, you know, you, you kind of had me at hello, but then all of a sudden kind of at the very end of the discussion, something just didn't kind of fit right. Uh, I actually just had a meeting like that the other day where everything was great. Uh, the opportunity was great. The, the, you know, the kind of product was great. And, you know, I looked at kind of their, financial forecast and not that anybody puts a lot of faith in the actual numbers behind the forecast but when i looked at it it kind of in the assumptions behind it it gave me a sense of kind of the lack of kind of big picture or aggressive thinking on on the part of this entrepreneur and it was kind of inconsistent with the rest of the story so to me that's kind of you know one big thing i think for people to think about is that the old uh, and i i'm far from a texan but is that the old uh, big hat no cattle line <laughs> exactly yeah, that's one. That's one way to say it. Exactly right. Yeah, um, the uh, so you know you, you need yeah. entrepreneurs to understand at least with VCs like yourselves, and and you know there's a handful of what I would describe as elite venture capitalists in the Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road kind of world. Um, I would have thought that most people would understand that. Um, hey, look, it's really awesome that you want to start your own garage, and it's going to be legendary and shit. Yeah. But we don't invest in like a standalone garage or whatever, exactly. you know. Exactly. And and I love those entrepreneurs. Um, I'm surrounded by them. Um, uh, and you guys are trying to fund something that's worth a hundred billion dollars. Yeah. And by the way, look, as you said, they may be great businesses. And quite frankly, uh, there's this is not a normative statement about whether that's a 
good thing or a bad thing to build a business that could be maybe smaller, but also might actually generate a tremendous amount of cash flow for the owners of the business. It's just a question of like the incentives just don't align, unfortunately, based on how our business works. Okay. So that's the first one. Hey, we're going, if you'll allow me, we're playing bigger here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the other one, particularly at the early stage that uh, I think people sometimes get wrong is um, thinking about kind of the evaluation criteria that we're trying to apply and therefore where do they spend their time, particularly in the pitch and the, and the uh, overall engagement. And what I've, what I've talked to a couple people about this before, and, and we talk about this in the book, is when you think about the early stage stuff, you know, there's kind of, we got, you know, we have to believe it's a big market. We have to believe your kind of product thinking around how you might address that market. But we know both of those things are not static, right? The market's going to change over time and the product, of course, is going to change over time. So those are important variables, but they are, you know, less often the kind of end-all be-all for decision-making. At the early stage, most of what we're doing is trying to evaluate the team. And we're trying to figure out, you know, I think of it as kind of two areas of team evaluation. One is kind of what's the fitness for this team to this particular opportunity. So why, I guess the, the crass way of asking the question is, why back this team versus any other team that could come along with the same business idea? You know, do they know something that nobody else knows? How did they earn kind of that secret, that, that understanding? What is it that makes them uniquely suited to this particular opportunity? And, and sometimes that means maybe, you know, this has been your life's mission or you did your PhD thesis in this and you are the world-renowned expert in the area. So, you know, often it's something like that that at least, you know, gives us some kind of tie to, you know, the team's background and the opportunity at hand. And then, the second piece, you know, I would kind of put in the broader kind of leadership, and I really, I use kind of storytelling in the book as a proxy for this, which is, you know, what will, uh, the way I describe storytelling is like, are you capable of basically making people do irrational things? Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, having been in the startup world, uh, you know, for you to come home to your partner or your spouse and say, by the way, I'm quitting my high paying job today to go work at this crazy startup. Uh, you know, that's a that's a fairly irrational decision when you think about it in many respects. Uh, and so a leader has to be able to convince people that, you know, kind of based on their vision to do things that might be a little bit crazy, like quit your job. Or if you're a customer, am I willing to basically put my, you know, my neck on the line to try a product that, you know, every incentive I have in my company is to not do that, but actually to, you know, stick with a safe product. So there's things of that sort that I would kind of, you know, put in the bucket of, you know, vision, leadership, storytelling, things that are incredibly valuable characteristics. <laughs> I love the, can you talk otherwise rational people into doing highly irrational things <laughs> like buying a product that sort of exists, but maybe not and leaving right, exactly. an incredible career for something that's probably not going to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I, uh, I've, I've been testing. I've been testing that one out. So I'm glad you like it. No, I like that one a lot. We had Mark uh, Randolph on the uh, a co-founder and original CEO of Netflix. Yeah, and he's got this great new book out called um, uh, that. I think it's called That Won't Work or This Won't Work. Oh, I, <laughs> you know, I think the, I heard about the this story yeah. of Netflix, and it's it is beyond awesome. And uh, yeah, it doesn't work a lot, and then and then one day, hopefully, it does. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yes, very irrational things. So that's fantastic. So they should, you know, the other expression I love is um, somebody said this once of Lars Darlgaard, a little bit of crazy goes a long way. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And And Lars, uh, I love Lars and I think he uh, he embodies that perfectly well. He's a great guy. And the other thing too, like I remember for a while, it was sort of popular to shit on Elon Musk. And the way I look at it is, what do you expect the guy 
who's trying to pioneer Mars right. to be like? Your yeah. accountant? <laughs> I think you're exactly right. I mean, look, it's, uh, I agree with you, which is, look, it's always fun to, to, uh, you know, to shit on people or do, or, you know, kind of make, make light of this stuff, but you're right. It's, it's, there's a certain personality type of people who, if you're going to do something that is crazy and you've got people telling you all the time why that won't work, you know, it's not surprising that you kind of attract a particular type of personality into this business. And oftentimes, you know, somebody like Elon can uh, kind of, work all that energy and all that magic into building something incredible and exciting and it doesn't work for everybody else. But, you know, we have this, we have this phrase internally we talk about all the time, which is we invest in strength, not lack of weakness. And uh, I think, you know, the founder archetype embodies that a lot, which is, you know, these are incredibly brilliant people who have incredible vision, who are willing to walk through walls. And as I said, kind of almost willfully suspend disbelief uh, to try to do something but, you know, those same characteristics also sometimes make them, you know, irritable or whatever, you know, kind of negative term you want to, you want to kind of talk about. And, you know, that's just, that's part of the business is you can't, you can't separate the good from the less good and these things. And you have to be willing to kind of take the package and as we say, kind of invest in the strength. Invest in strength, not lack of weakness. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. You should think about writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good suggestion. I'll take you up on that. And so now let's pretend I'm an entrepreneur and um, I think I've got team fit to the opportunity. Yep. Um, I think I've got some real compelling problem or opportunity that I think is going to attract a new market or category. And I think I've got some, I don't know if it's completely pr proprietary, but I've got some unique set of capabilities that would suggest that I could be the guy that pulls this thing off, right? Yep. Yep. At least that's what I think. Yeah. Now I want to come to you guys and um, in a extraordinarily short period of time, um, you and your partners have created uh, uh, an, ex an extraordinary position as one of the top tier VCs. You, you basically were a top tier VC on day of birth, sort of how that worked, <laughs> if, I, if I remember, and, um, and have been growing into the reputation and having the reputation grow along the way. Uh, and so being funded by you folks is no small feat. Um, it's, it's a statement to the world <laughs> when you guys write a check. And so if I wanted, um, to be an entrepreneur, uh, who gets funded by you guys, um, what would I need to do to increase my odds? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, you hit on a couple of them and then I'll hit a couple more. So first of all is tell us exactly that story. So what is it about you and your team that makes you uniquely qualified? You know, help me understand kind of your storytelling capabilities, your, you know, stick to itness, your ability to kind of convince people to do things. You know, two, as we talked about, is laying out kind of the market opportunity. So, you know, we we try to understand a lot of markets, but you know, oftentimes we need to be educated by the entrepreneur. So help us understand ultimately why is this market opportunity big enough that if it's successful, and let's not debate yet whether it will be or not, let's just assume it is successful, what does success look like? So could this be, you know, you mentioned this earlier, but could it be a standalone public company, which probably means in today's day and age, it's at least a several billion dollar market cap company. So, you know, can the market support a company of that? Um, on the product side, because the product will change so much, you know, we're less interested in exactly the product, but kind of we use the term idea maze, right? Which is what have you help us understand kind of, you know, the path that you've walked based on the information you know today to tell us, hey, this is why I think this is the right product with the understanding that once you get in the market, of course, you'll get lots of feedback from customers that will help, you know, kind of, you know, cause you to iterate and drive on that. 
And then, you know, the other big thing, uh, you know, which we didn't talk about at all yet is kind of help us understand kind of the go-to-market for this business, right? So in other words, let's assume you're successful building the product and you get it into market. How do you think about scaling this business? So is it an, you know, enterprise software company where you're going to go hire a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, Rolex wearing 42 long, you know, kind of sales guys? Or are you doing an inside sales, bottoms up sales model? Or are you rely- is it a consumer product where you're relying on paid customer acquisition? You know, nobody expects you to have all the answers on what the details of those will look like, but like help us understand what's the construct under which you're going to go to market so that, you know, we can at least get some confidence that, uh, you know, this is not just kind of a product-based vision that you have, but also you've kind of put together the other pieces of the puzzle, which is how do we grow and scale and ultimately kind of, you know, create this into a full-fledged company. And so the way I hear that is you expect a lot more than a story and a PowerPoint and some high-level financials. You want to see some meaningful thought around how this business is going to work, how it's going to scale, how it's going to go to market, how it's going to acquire customers, um, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's not, look, none of these, to be clear, none of these are spreadsheet exercises, right? So you don't need to hire some spreadsheet jockey to build you some, you know, fancy model about how the business works. It's really more, it's really the same idea maze concept that we think about on the product side, which is, look, you ought to have thought about this uh, a hell of a lot more than, than we have when you come pitch us. And a lot of the pitch for us is trying to kind of get a sense for the depth of your thinking. And, you know, obviously we'll spend more time, of course, outside just initial pitch, but, you know, the initial pitch is important because it does leave an initial impression among the venture capitalists as to, the depth of your thinking, the strength of your conviction, your, you know, understanding of things that, you know, could potentially go wrong and how you might respond to those. So as I said, I, I wouldn't, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, building the fanciest Excel model, but to be able to walk people through your thinking around the, you know, what would the business look like? How are we going to charge customers? Things of that sort. It's the assumptions behind them that matter, not the actual outputs in an Excel file. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you're going to come in and ask for $5 million, $10 million, $15 million, whatever it is. Hey, give it some thought, <laughs> right? That seems like, it seems like a reasonable ask, doesn't it? It seems like a reasonable ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's funny because I talk to entrepreneurs and I, I don't know, I don't know if they probably don't get through your doors, but some people have this idea that they're going to sort of have this sort of dream and scheme kind of slides and go in and get funded. Um yeah, no, look, you know, there's a role for that too, right? Which is, look, yes, we want to hear the conquer the world strategy, right? And so it's great to have the high level, you know, strategy stuff. But at some point in time, uh, you know, there's lots of ideas out there. So much of this, and, you know, you know this again, having been in the business for a long time, um, so much of success or failure in these businesses, I, I believe, comes down to a function of actual execution. And I know that can, that may sound like mother and apple pie to a certain extent, Um but I would have thought when I started the business that a lot more of the failures we'd have with our portfolio companies would be just that they either built a product that wasn't that interesting or they, you know, kind of the market, you know, changed or the market didn't exist. But more often than not, like the companies get past that initial phase. And then the question is, okay, can you actually go from a company that's got, you know, a couple million dollars of business to a 20, you know, 50, $100 million business. And those are all kind of scaling and go to market and operational and, you know, executive hiring and, you know, culture and all the other things that, uh, you know, are, are, you know, kind of separate from kind of product and market. And, and that's why, again, I think why team becomes so important in the evaluation of these, of these businesses is, you know, we know products will change. We know markets will change. Unfortunately, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure people change. Um, and so, you know, kind of you, you are, you are ultimately with the team that you kind of brought to this battle. And uh, it's very hard to kind of change those norms as you kind of get deeper into the business. 
Yeah, I, I know you've seen these situations where I saw it a while back uh, where this company had done great. They got to IPO. And as they were IPOing, there was something about the construction of the executive team. They just couldn't fly in, in, in formation. Yeah. Just everybody started getting on each other and so-and-so was after so-and-so and so-and-so thought so-and-so was an asshole. And like it just in and around the IPO, like heading into it, like, hey, we're, 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 this is going to work. This is going to fucking work. You yep. just got to hold together and they just couldn't <laughs> hold together, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's not a fun place to be. Um, but, uh, but look, I think that's the reality of these businesses is they are, you know, it's not, most of our businesses don't have super deep intellectual property, right? We're not, we typically aren't investing in companies where they've got a tremendous amount of patents or things like that. Most of our businesses are software-based businesses. So there's certainly technology, obviously, and there are, you know, probably trade secrets, but, you know, so much of success or failure is a function of, you know, can you actually rally a team of people to go do something, whether that's sales or marketing or product development and, those are inherently interpersonal issues. Yeah. Now, I wonder um, if we could switch gears a little bit. I'm very curious to ask you, you know, the, we had a little rumblings not long ago about potentially a recession and those rumblings seem to go away. And uh, we've had a couple of those little little quakes in the last uh, 18 months or so, yeah. uh, but then they seem to go away. And, you know, we hear um, Silicon Valley's on fire, but you know, uh, valuations are coming down. And, you know, so we, well, there's all these sort of, there's a lot of, a lot of noise in the system. And so from your perspective, you know, how does Silicon Valley and sort of the whole tech uh, startup world look to you guys? Uh, I think things look actually pretty good, to be honest. Uh, so let's take a couple of things you talked about. Um, there's no question that valuations are, are higher. If you look at them over the last 10 years, it's, it's 100% the case that valuations have grown over that time period. Um, I, I, would, I would at least make the argument, and I think there's reasonable data to support this, that uh, part of what is happening here is a recognition of the potential market size opportunities for a number of these companies. So, you know, you know, the easy numbers, of course, that people talk about all the time, which I think are still good to look at is if you look at the total internet population, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen, uh, you know, founded Netscape many years ago. And uh, when they sold that to AOL in 1998, there were about 145 million total people globally who had access to the internet. Um, that number today, well, I want to make of course, sure I got that 145 million in 1998, 1998, right. Which was when AOL acquired Netscape, right? So that was the <laughs> sum total of the entire addressable market, right? And, you know, Netscape and AOL did a great job, but like, no matter how good they were, there was only so much money ultimately you could generate in a market of that size. You know, today we're, depending on the numbers, uh, you, you see you're somewhere between 4.3 billion and 4.5 billion is what the comparable number is to that 145 million. So that's not to say, by the way, I don't want to be cavalier about that's not to say that every single company that's getting started today is going to go be able to actually sell to those all 4.5 billion people. But it is to say that the magnitude of the winners in a market of today, given kind of the size of technology, the adoption of technology uh, is just dramatically different than it was over time. And so it's not surprising if you look at kind of, you know, the contribution of technology to GDP in the US or the contribution of technology to the S&P 500 you know, you would expect that that would actually grow over time commensurate with the actual influence that technology has and the reach technology has in many respects. So that's kind of, I think, you know, I think a pretty strong underpinning, at least for, you know, kind of a theory on why valuations actually may have risen over time. And it may not be as everyone is prone to say, just, you know, a repeat of the bubble that we saw in 99, 2000. Um, it's also the case, the other data you can look at is if you look at kind of venture dollars that are being raised by the industry and then dollars that are being invested each year into companies. 
Uh, last year, just to give you some numbers, we raised about $50 billion, five zero in the U.S., um, which is uh, you know, a very healthy number. In fact, the last time we had that number was 1999. And, and uh, I'm not, uh, as I said, I'm not one to make comparisons, but uh, I think it's a very different $50 billion today than it was that we raised in 1999. Uh, we also invested a little over $100 billion last year. So there's this idea that, you know, kind of, you know, venture capitalists are not investing in companies or that entrepreneurship is going away. I think there's not a whole lot of support for that. You know, the number of seed opportunities has grown something like 8x over the last 10 years. So there's plenty of kind of activity happening there. Um, I think the the issues, you know, to be balanced, right, are things that you mentioned, which is there's kind of potential macro risks out there that are making people nervous, right? So, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I don't know if we're going to, you know, go to a trade war with China or we're going to actually resolve it or, you know, we've got, you know, who knows, like, I don't, I have no idea what impeachment talks mean from an actual market perspective. So there's a lots of these things that are creating kind of macro uncertainty. But I think if you look at the fundamentals in terms of technology and venture, and then even if you look at the fundamentals of the US economy, you know, between, you know, consumer spend and unemployment and inflation, you know, it's hard to see, you know, kind of anything that really, you know, kind of, you know, uh, scares you too much in that respect. I'm stoked you feel that way. Very stoked to hear that. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm right. We'll see if I'm right or not. I, I hope and, you're oh, right. By, well, by the way, by the way, I'm not an economist, so I should I should probably uh, no, yeah, no, look. I, I get it, but you sit in one of the most remarkable seats, um, you know, in business, frankly, and certainly in Silicon Valley. I mean, you sit in the hell of a seat. Yeah. So no, look, I I think if you said if you said look, what is the state of the technology market broadly? it's hard not to be incredibly optimistic. So, you know, we're still only really 10 years into the iPhone cycle. Well, uh, you know, we're now starting to see incredible things like the application of computer science to biology, right? And the opportunity to, you know, dramatically change how we discover drugs and how we treat disease. Like there is a, you know, endless number of really exciting things. I mean, I, I said this to somebody the other day, we, I've probably seen, you know, we probably see a couple thousand pitches a year and we've been in this for about 10 years. So, just order of magnitude, I think we've, we've probably seen 10 or 20,000 pitches over the last 10 years. Um, I can count on one hand the number of times we've walked out of a pitch meeting and said, either that's a silly idea or I've seen that idea 50 times. I can't believe somebody's devoting their life to it. Like, you know, if you're ever depressed, uh, I, I say this when I go to DC all the time because people there are very depressed in the government about the state of technology. It's like, if you're ever depressed about entrepreneurship, like come spend half a day on Sand Hill Road and it will cure your depression for sure because the inventiveness and the excitement that's happening is great. And, and look, lots of those things won't work. We know that. But uh, the point is like the, the opportunity to build new technology companies and the availability of capital for those businesses certainly is, you know, as strong as it's ever been. But we have so many things that we didn't used to have, right? I mean, yeah. who, who knew that you were going to have to pay zero on infrastructure thanks to AWS and now a whole bunch of competitive offerings, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the last time we had this kind of uh, tech boom, of course, during the quote unquote bubble, um, you needed $5 million of venture capital to buy sun servers and Absolutely. build websites and, you know, shop, yeah, had custom build shopping carts and shit. And, yeah. you know, I mean, it was a massive technology investment before you could even start building your thing. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, we were, uh, you know, uh, myself and, you know, Mark Andrews and Ben Horowitz were at this company, LoudCloud, right, that, they, that the two of them founded in 1999. And it's exactly that. And uh, which is we, we raised venture capital money. And basically, we handed all that money over exactly to Sun Microsystems, to Oracle to buy database licenses, to EMC to buy servers, uh, excuse me, storage, to, you know, Cisco to buy networking gear. 
And, you know, I've, I've joked, you know, it was almost as if the, the startups were effectively money laundering. You know, they were the mechanism by which venture capitalists laundered money through the startups into the big cap tech companies. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Today, you know, none of our companies are doing that. Nobody's buying infrastructure. Everything is kind of operating expense, pay-as-you-go model. And uh, I agree with you, which is I think it's hard to underestimate the impact that has on the business and what that means in terms of people being able to kind of get something off the ground for relatively low amounts of capital and quite frankly, experiment and see if it works. And, you know, a lot of these things we know won't work, but that's okay. The process of kind of natural selection and experimentation is is a really important part of entrepreneurship. I mean, it, it used to cost over a million dollars to build a content website, like a basic corporate website. Yeah, it's amazing. Right? Uh, yeah, it's incredible. So the, 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 the economic opportunity then means the entrepreneurs can focus at that, whatever the thing is, whatever the application is, whatever right. the device is, whatever, the, whatever it is, right? As opposed to all the underlying uh, technology that didn't used to exist. And so yeah. I just, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's the most exciting time in history to be an entrepreneur and particularly to be an entrepreneur using technology. And frankly, if you're not, if you're an entrepreneur and you're not using technology, I don't know what the fuck you're doing. <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah, you might, you might, one yeah, of the same. you might want to double click on that if that's what's, uh, if that's where you are. Yep. And so are there particular areas that you guys are particularly uh, focused on or thinking about? Yeah. So our business, um, we've been investing on this one theme for the last 10 years uh, that, you know, uh, we've written about my partner, Mark wrote about it called software is eating the world is basically kind of been our, our one theme. And what that means to us is, you know, we view software as this very horizontal technology. And quite frankly, our job is to see what entrepreneurs are doing with software and what vertical industries they think are most interesting to apply software to. And we need to be open-minded enough to listen to what they're doing and quite frankly, do the work and do the diligence once we see what they're doing. So, you know, that's led us into things like financial services, you know, uh, applications for software. Uh, you know, we've got, you know, drones, we've got, you know, autonomous vehicles, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I'd say the stuff that's most interesting right now that, I, that we're doing is around kind of the intersection of software with life sciences. And, uh, you know, I briefly mentioned it in the last, uh, you know, question, which is this idea that, you know, the traditional way of doing drug discovery, for example, of having this very kind of wet lab scientific based approach to it now being augmented by, you know, at a minimum kind of just computation. And then, you know, even more significantly things like machine learning, right, where you can actually almost, you know, help, uh, use the computers to kind of intuit what is it about, you know, kind of a particular disease or something that might actually, you know, be druggable and, and things in it just in a very different way than we've done before. That to me is just fascinating. I think there's a huge opportunity, certainly from a financial perspective, but, you know, importantly, from a societal perspective, if you think about, you know, you and I both live in the Bay Area, so we're lucky enough to have access to, you know, fantastic medical institutions and university hospitals who've got all this wonderful technology. But, you know, the vast majority of the U.S. and the world, you know, live in environments where they just don't have access to that level of care. And the more we can actually figure out ways to deliver care, uh, you know, using things like, you know, uh, you know, computers doing radiology or computers doing pathology, all these interesting areas. It's, it's a pretty fascinating future. So that's by far, I'd say one of the most interesting things that, that we're doing right now, uh, very early stage, but, uh, but just tremendous opportunity. Anything else? Um, you know, we're the, the thing I would say, which I don't think we know the answer yet is kind of, uh, we're trying to think through what the next potentials are for platforms, right? And so if you think about platforms, like certainly companies like, you know, Facebook and Google and others that have become platforms, or you think of the iPhone, obviously, as a platform, 
you know, it's traditionally been the case that obviously there's tremendous economic returns to the platform, but also those platforms then unveil a whole set of innovation around applications that live on those platforms or infrastructure that support those. And so we're, we're kind of, you know, fi- trying to figure out exactly what that is. I mean, you know, there's, you know, in one level, you know, kind of, you know, VR and AR potentially could become that platform. Uh, we are actually doing quite a bit of investing around crypto related uh, technologies. So, uh, you know, and we view that quite frankly as another potential platform, which is this idea that instead of building on kind of centralized platforms that you might have, you know, developers interested in building out on decentralized, um, you know, platforms that are kind of governed and managed decentralized as opposed to through centralized areas. So that's where I'd say we're spending a lot of kind of our in, our early investment and probably kind of, you know, intellectual time right now. Uh, I don't know if we know the full answer yet, but uh, we're certainly investing in each of those areas and, and trying to identify opportunities that, that, you know, might be similar to that. No. When you folks are hanging out on the edge of some of these ideas and some of this thinking, whether it's crypto or whether it's new platform opportunities or whatever it is, um, you are doing some, what I've got to believe is some very forward uh, leaning. You're very far out in front of your skis in terms of, yes. uh, A, some, some shit you have to know about where this stuff is likely to go from a technology and market opportunity perspective, and as well as sort of you got to get comfortable with a set of assumptions that, to your point, have a high degree of likelihood of being completely wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, how do you, you know, how do you work on the edge of your skis all the time in that way? Break, break that down for me if you could. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I think the way to think about it is, it'd be very hard to get yourself comfortable with it if you were, if you were doing what I would call rifle shots, right? If you were saying, hey, you know what, like we're going to invest in one company in this space and hopefully it goes to the moon. And if it doesn't, you know, we lose all of our money and and we've got nothing else going. But the beauty and the benefit that we have in our business is we get to actually reduce risk by building a portfolio, right? So if, you know, think about it, right. If we're going to make, so for example, you know, we're doing crypto related stuff like, you know, yes, we are making a bet on the category of crypto, but within that category, within that, you know, kind of broad category, you know, we're going to make bets on currency related issues and on infrastructure on, you know, things that might be kind of, you know, uh, you know, compute systems on applications. We're going to try to kind of at least reduce our risk by having diversification across a broad classification of things. And, you know, oftentimes also we, we, we sometimes are investing kind of cross uh, what's the right word to say, cross industry um, in a single fund. So we might have in a single fund something that touches financial services and some things that touch transportation and other stuff. So we inherently get the benefit of, of portfolio diversification as a way to at least mitigate that risk. Um, the other thing that at least I think, you know, allows you to get comfortable doing that in this business is we just know from history, it's kind of where we started the discussion, which is uh, I'll, I'll torture the baseball analogy one more time, which is the batting average doesn't really matter in this industry. In other words, it doesn't matter how many times you get up and get a hit. What matters is kind of when you get a home run, what is the magnitude of that home run, right? So, you know, in our case, right, you've got cap downside, right? You can never lose more money than you kind of put it in. And hopefully you have complete asymmetric upside on the things that win. And we know from history, at least, if you look at the data, that probably we only need about 10 or 20% of the things we invest in to ultimately be in that right upper quadrant of, you know, very high returns to effectively subsidize all the losses that you might get on the, on the stuff that doesn't work. And so, you know, that's not, you know, those are, those are not great uh, odds, but those are like reasonable odds. And so the, 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 what allows us to sleep at night is we say, okay, look, if we're fishing, you know, kind of in the right ponds where 
we're in front of all the most interesting, innovative entrepreneurs. And hopefully we've done our diligence correctly to at least, you know, test our assumptions. You know, if we do all that right, you know, there's a reasonable chance that we'll have a small minority of companies that will ultimately, you know, be able to drive most of the returns for the business. There's been a huge change in Silicon Valley and certainly my time here over the last 25 years or so. And uh, one of them is there's a lot more money in the system that comes from people who might call themselves venture capitalists, um, but they're not venture capitalists in any way that I would understand a uh, entrepreneurial back VC who's more than likely have been uh, an entrepreneur prior or maybe she's been a senior exe- executive at startups, but she's, she or he, whoever you're working with as a VC, has been in the world, chances are they're not bankers, right? right. And, and they are what I would describe more as craft VCs. They're, they're people who have skills, who've been to the show, who share expertise amongst themselves and you know, try to coach and, and, and shepherd entrepreneurs to success. That's the world that I understood. Right, yeah. plus yeah. or minus, yeah. And then, ta-da! The money guy showed up, right? <laughs> and they're 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 just money. They're yeah. not craft VCs, uh, and they yeah. have they have a whole different set of uh, um, motivations and focus. Um, and so, I'm curious how you think about um, that evolution. Yeah. I, I think you're. I think it's a good description, right? Which is, I think the I think the way to think about this business is it bifurcates between kind of you know craft VC, maybe the right way to describe it. But basically, people who are interested in working with the companies, being something other than just capital, and hopefully helping them kind of along their path for for uh, growth. Now, you know, as you know, ought to be totally clear. You know, the VCs don't make these businesses. The VCs don't run them. The entrepreneurs, of course, do that. But I think there is a role for the VCs in terms of providing guidance and networks and relationships and other things that can help accelerate the growth of these companies. And then I think you're right. There's a whole set of players that, you know, I would consider them, look, they're, they're financial investors. And that's not, you know, to denigrate that at all, because look, we are, we are financial investors too. In the end, that, in the end of the day, if we don't deliver returns to our investors, you know, we'll all be looking for new jobs. So, you know, we all are financial investors in that respect. But I think people who come into this business, people who come in at a later stage in the opportunity set and say, look, I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time in the core of the business. I'm making a financial decision and, um, you know, my money is actually what creates differentiation in the sense of, you know, I've got access to very large pools of capital uh, and therefore, you know, I can uh, use that, you know, to help these companies also grow. So, you know, look, I, I guess I'm, I'm not too cynical about it in the sense that, look, I think it's a little bit of a natural evolution of the business. Uh, it's also a function of the fact that these companies are staying private so much longer. You know, they're, they're, they're staying private roughly double the amount of time they used to, you know, the, the, the data just so you have it. It used to be about six, six and a half years was the time from founding of a company that was VC back to going public. And today that's probably 10 or 12 years. So, you know, we've literally doubled that time period. And so I think what you're really seeing is happening is companies that would have been public at a prior date are now staying private. And therefore the money that would have been public money is now coming into the private markets to try to capture that appreciation, right? So you almost really just have, you know, a reaction of these big money investors now realizing that the only way I can kind of, you know, get more appreciation of these companies is to pick them up in the private markets where they're at a state that quite frankly, I used to be able to buy them in the public markets. So I think that's really the way to think about what's happening. And so I don't view it as, you know, quite frankly, normatively good or bad for the industry. I think it's more a reflection to changes that have happened both in the capital markets as well as in the industry. 
Um, you know, my personal view, and, and I've, I've talked about this with people in DC publicly, is um, the idea that more and more growth is happening in the private markets while beneficial, you know, selfishly for people like me who get to, you know, kind of monetize that growth. Uh, I don't think it's good for the country. I don't think it's good to not have kind of companies going public at a reasonable stage where a broader cross-section of, of public market investors can actually enjoy the appreciation there. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about potentially ways to try and address that, none of which yet is kind of a magic, uh, magic elixir. But, uh, but I think that's really kind of the way to think about kind of what's happening in that context. I love that you're thinking about it. Uh, it's been something that I've been concerned about for quite some time um, because I, I think that there's a, and I'll use this word sort of on purpose, a forced level of rigor and discipline that one must go through to become yeah. a public company. And are there downsides? Of course, there are in the quarterly number. You know, I, I get it. You know, I've been to the show, right? Yeah. So right. Uh, there's there's good with the bad in, in in a lot of things in life, but it does force a level of rigor and a, a board of directors behavior, and uh, often a leveling up of certain key members of the executive team, and you know, a growth agenda that is 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 clear and concise and believable and hopefully executable. And like, you, you got to put on your big girl pants, right? And I think there's a lot of that that's good. And the other one I'd be curious to get your reaction to is, even though I know in some of these quote-unquote private IPOs, there have been opportunities for employees to sell, um, I, I think the employees have really gotten the shaft in a lot of this because yeah. the, the reality is the way they monetize their risk is with an IPO and maybe they can sell something in you know series F at 2 billion at a private round or whatever but it's it's still not the same as an IPO and it doesn't have a level of flexibility over time and they can't set up selling programs or put them you know there's just a, they're they're hamstrung and they're not able to monetize it and I think I think employees make a trade right we ask yeah. them to make that trade and bet on the dream and so I think a lot of them frankly you tell me if this is unfair but a lot of you know Salespeople and engineers and product managers and you know people doing real work have kind of gotten fucked on this. Yeah, so I I agree with I agree with both comments uh, you made, which is what is look I 100% agree with the level of discipline and uh, maturity that is required to being a public company. And yes, I hear you too. I agree with you too. Look, there's downsides to it, but I think that's an important evolution for companies. And, and obviously, we're 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 missing out or we're deferring more of that. Obviously, as these companies stay private. Uh, I also actually uh, agree 100% with you on the employee side, and and you're right, which is there's kind of these partial tender offers where yes, you know I've been at the company for a couple of years, I can sell 10% of my holdings once a year, you know, as you said, kind of in the Series F, and you know those are nice things, but I agree they're not sufficient substitutes for having a public currency where you know I can set up a trading program or you know kind of I can actually get liquidity at times that I think are important for my family. Um, the interesting piece on that one is I think that actually is what is going to, that's what's putting a limiter on actually the length of time these companies can stay private. Uh, I think we've kind of reached the outer limits at 10 or 12 years as to what employees are willing to accept. And it's not just, by the way, uh, existing employees, but it's also the ability of these companies at that stage to be able to recruit new employees, right? Because you can imagine, right, if you were... Um, I don't know, I'll just pick one that's not in our portfolio, so it's easy. If you were, you know, Uber trying to recruit people before you went public, as attractive as it might be to work at Uber, if you're looking to join Uber six or nine months ago, 
you're probably also looking at Facebook or Google, right? You're looking, you're in that category of kind of companies that are more comparable as opposed to you're not looking at a series A company probably at that stage if you're a candidate to go to Uber, you know, when it's a $20, $30 billion business. And it is interesting that a lot of those companies are having trouble competing against the public companies precisely because of the issue you mentioned that, you know, restricted stock units, RSUs, of course, have become a very big part of public company compensation. And no matter how attractive you might think Uber RSUs are, if they're not liquid, it's a really hard trade-off to make. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the market is starting to realize this and that will, I think, at least kind of put a governor on, you know, you know whether we can actually extend these companies out for, to, to being private as long as they have been. Well, and look, it, it may not be something that people like to talk about, but I don't know, you tell me if this is unfair. Um, <laughs> the, the stock option had a lot to do with the, the making of Silicon Valley because in my mind, what the stock option did was it allowed um, more, if you will, democratization of entrepreneurship. That is to say, if you and I come up with a crazy dream idea, and to your point on being able to tell a good story, we managed to convince a handful of hopefully really smart you know, wonderful people who want to do something fantastic uh, to leave their big jobs at Uber and Facebook and Google and I don't know where and to come join our crazy thing and take a massive pay cut. But you get a little, you get a piece of the action. So we're kind of all in it together. And if the thing wins, we all win. And if it fails, oh, well, we gave it our best shot. And now we're going to go try and give it some VCs and away we go, right? And that's sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm naive. That's the spirit of the thing, isn't it? I don't think, you know, I don't think you're naive at all. I think that's exactly right. It's not only the spirit. I think, it really is this. It's the secret in many respects to kind of what has made Silicon Valley incredibly successful, right? Is this idea that you're exactly right, which is look, you've got, you know, some some people might take issue with the term of democratization, right? Because we know everything's not completely equal in that respect. But the idea that everybody has at least the opportunity to have a piece of equity and a piece of the upside, I agree, that's a huge part of this, and it's what makes this it's what it's what makes this valley tick, right? Which is you have an opportunity to do it. And then I think even more importantly is then a lot of people feel like, okay, great. I've had one success. Now, how can I take some of my winnings and basically convert that into another success? And it, it's hugely important. And, uh, you know, I think if you look at it relative to uh, particularly other countries where, you know, things like taxation of stock options and stuff have not been as favorably, you know, uh, received as they have been in the U.S., you certainly see the impacts of kind of lesser entrepreneurship in some of those markets for sure. Yeah, I always thought it was genius. Give everybody part of the dream. And I, I, I've, I have felt bad over my time in Silicon Valley to see this extension go on in terms of going public because I think yeah. it's I think it's been bad for employees. Yep. Um, now, uh, I also have to ask you, uh, what you folks did was, um, in my opinion, um, create a new niche in venture capital, um, which was, to the best of my knowledge, you folks were the first to espouse that you were going to build a VC firm with a set of services to support the entrepreneur that work with the general partners. Right. And so you, you were going to model a VC firm, not as a VC firm, but as a, and you tell me if I'm getting it wrong, but a professional services firm or some kind of an agency or, so, you yeah. know, with a set of intellectual capital and human beings to surround entrepreneurs and companies with a set of uh, capabilities and coaching and advice and insight. And I don't know, you'll tell me, but yeah, yeah, a, a yeah, set of yeah. services. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So in fact, the origin of it, in fact, the, the agency piece of it was, um, uh, this comes actually out of uh, the original creative artist agency. So CAA. Uh, so Michael Ovitz was actually a board member in our last company. He was the founder of CAA. And he had the same observation of the talent agency business in kind of 1975 as 
kind of we saw in the late, uh, you know, kind of early 2000s, sorry, for the venture business, which was the old model was this very kind of one-to-one, you have a GP who sits on your board. The equivalent, of course, in the in the talent agency business was you have an agent who's kind of responsible for you. And that model worked well for a number of years. The innovation that he did at CAA was they said, look, in addition to the primary kind of relationship driver on the agent side, we're going to build a team of specialists so that if you are an actor and you come in and we're trying to pitch you on something, we can tell you, look, like, let's put all these people in a room and then this person's in charge of international movies. Let me tell you all the things that, you know, we can do for you on that side. You know, this next person is an expert on radio programming or, or on books or television or whatever the case may be. And so the theory is kind of uh, not necessarily rely on the agent in that case or the general partner in our case to have to be an expert in everything, but allow them to kind of quarterback the process, be the coach, mentor, kind of, you know, ultimate res- person responsible for the, you know, for, for that individual but then be able to tap into this entire network that is professionally managed by a team of people who actually are experts in their particular domains. So the equivalent for us, you know, instead of movies and television and stuff is, you know, we have a team that really is focused on relationships uh, that will help from a sales and business development perspective, or uh, we have a team that does relationships with the business press and the trade press to help kind of ensure that from a marketing perspective, people are getting access to the people they need to. Right. Uh, and Run so all, by one of the on, master senses of, PR and communications of all time. <laughs> yeah, no, Margaret is uh, Margaret's fantastic. She's uh, she's been an incredible, uh, you know, uh, partner at the firm here. But but it's it's you're right. It's that idea which is um, instead of kind of you know a GP basically having to kind of become an expert in all these areas, let's effectively kind of develop expertise, you know, kind of by domain. And then the other beauty of it is is that if you interact with the firm you have kind of a single set of relationships that you can tap into with the firm as opposed to in some in some other firms, your set of relationships is governed by which GP you happen to be aligned with, right? Because, you know, uh, they, they may not know the particular people you want and there's not necessarily a mechanism in the firm to go figure that out. Whereas we said, look, we're just going to manage networks and relationships, you know, kind of at the macro level and everybody should be able to plug into those, you know, as long as they're appropriate for their business. And I'm curious, you know, it, it obviously meant a, a huge change in the level of people yes. that work at the firm compared to a traditional one-on-one kind of craft VC. And so you're, I mean, you went out and, you know, you, you got a ton of office space and you went out and hired, I don't know, <laughs> tell me how many people, but it seems like a lot. Yes. And, uh, you know, you guys uh, put the foot through the floor here on the throttle on sort of building infrastructure and services and capabilities for entrepreneurs at a at a investment level that the best of my knowledge had never been done before. Yeah, no, you're right. We have 180 people today, actually, which is by in and of itself is incredibly unusual for a venture firm. And 100 of those 180 people actually are in these kind of post investment teams. So uh, you're right. It's a, it's a level of investment that I don't think we've seen before in the industry. Um, obviously, you know, the, the reason we were able to do it is we designed it from the ground up to do that. So, you know, we budgeted for it. We knew that it would require kind of management and, you know, all the other things, you know, you know, we often talk about, look, this place looks more like a company than it does a venture capital firm. You know, we actually have, you know, managers and they have objectives and metrics and all those things that you would find at a company, uh, you know, all of that kind of old fashioned stuff. Um, but that's, that's kind of, you know, why it works is the organization was set up that way from the very beginning. We're not trying to graft something onto an existing infrastructure. And, uh, uh, I, I guess I, I you know, I've got to ask you, I mean, um, Ben and Mark are, are icons, legends, uh, 
cast huge shadows, have incredible, uh, incredible backgrounds and contributions. I also think, by the way, I'll say for the record, yeah. um, and I've said this elsewhere, so um, I'm not just telling you. I think uh, LoudCloud, you guys, sort of got effed in terms of credit for <laughs> the existence of the cloud. And I take no, I, appreciate I take nothing away from Mark Benioff. All hail King Mark. <laughs> legendary job, dude. You're in the front of the Hall of Fame. God bless America. You're legendary. And unless I'm mistaken, Loud Cloud, and I remember a very early pitch from the company, yep. very early, when describing sort of what today people would recognize as an AWS-like service. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I can remember Mark giving a pitch and talking about sort of these groupings of capabilities and storage and whatever the hell. Yeah, yeah right? absolutely. As clouds. That's exactly right. I, I, uh, I, I mean, did you got, you invented that shit, yes? In terms of the way to think about that <laughs> and the use of that word. Am I wrong about this? I, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's 100% factually true, but I certainly, look, I'm going to take your word for it and uh, take that as a, as a congratulatory I, don't know, uh, I consume comment. a tremendous amount of alcohol and that was the 90s. But no, no, no. I'm pretty sure that's the first time anybody heard that thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think it was. And um, uh, as we like to joke, kind of we were we were cloud before cloud was cool. Um, and, and, you know, the other part of history, of course, that nobody remembers. And again, this is no disrespect to Benioff either is, you know, there were things called ASPs that you probably remember from your days, which was basically the precursor to Salesforce.com, which was people who basically took existing CRM applications and tried to just host them on behalf of clients. So, uh, you know, obviously Mark deserves a tremendous amount of credit for everything he's done, but yeah, the, the, the invention of these models kind of ultimately led to someone like Mark Benioff kind of taking the best of all those different kind of pieces that were out there and realizing that he could build something from the ground up that could actually support that type of business. So, you know, it's, you know, it was a amazing Every time. time I see Mark referred to as, you know, the creator of the browser or the co-founder of Netscape or whatever, you know, that's generally what's led with. And, you know, of course, duh, but I never see it. And by the way, the cloud guy too. <laughs> All right. Well, we when when we celebrate privately and nobody's looking, we uh, we we high five him for that. So, well, tell him, tell him uh, I might drink a lot, but I do remember. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's great. That's great. <laughs> now, is there anything else uh, that you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, I, I I think we hit on some some great topics. It's been a it's been a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, no, I I think uh, hopefully uh, uh, we've covered all the good stuff. Like how do you how do you how do you get the money? How do you how do you pitch it? And then importantly, some of the bigger topics like IPOs and and uh, you know the evolution of the business. So it's been a lot of fun. Well, I can't thank you enough, Scott. You're an incredible guy. I'm so glad you wrote the book. Thank because you. it didn't exist and it was inside baseball and you know you turned the light on in a dark room and you know i think that's a powerful thing for entrepreneurs great well listen i appreciate it and uh, happy to come back anytime you'll have me i'll have you back anytime you want to <laughs> come back brother <laughs> all right you take care thank you my friend bye-bye well i sure hope you enjoyed that conversation with the legendary scott cooper uh, as much as i did and if you know somebody who would love this conversation we'd love you just a little bit extra if you shared it with them all right. We would like to thank Scott Cooper and his firm, Andreessen Horowitz. You can check them out at a16z.com. I also want to thank my buddy, Dan Cassetta, 
for putting me in touch with the legendary Scott Cooper. Dan's an incredible guy, and he's the host of one of my favorite podcasts. Check out Changing Lives Podcast with Dan Cassetta. Uh, Now, is it time to scale yourself? Why not look into the power of a virtual assistant with my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants at bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. Now, are you a B2B company in the Silicon Valley? Then you know your website matters because it is often the first and most important thing people see when they're getting to know your business. My friends at Atranet have been building B2B enterprise websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check them out at atre.net today. And if you're new in your career and you want to stand out in your job hunt and get hired faster, check out my friends at crash.co. That's C-R-A-S-H dot co today. And um, a nonprofit I want to point you to today, the California Peace Officers Memorial Foundation. They recognize and honor California's peace officers who give their lives in the line of duty and provide support to their families. Please check out camemorial.org. That's camemorial.org. All right, I need to remind you that this oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that this oddcast is clearly created in a studio that does contain nuts. We're produced by the legendary Jamie J and edited by Sarah Parrish and Mike D. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to teach kids entrepreneurship, buy crazy socks, keep your eyes on the road and your hands upon the wheel, teach peace. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Uh, Stay legendary. Until we're together again, follow your different.